Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we are reading back some of the messages that you've sent in over the past week or two. So, uh, Rob, if you're ready, I think I'll jump right into one of these messages about our episodes on tears. All right. Okay, so this one comes from a listener who did share her name, but I I think I'm going to keep this one anonymous just in case because it gets into some potentially dicey territory, but but this was a good one. So this listener says, hey, I wanted to share a funny story about crocodile tears. My husband and I had only been dating for a few weeks when he accompanied me to a pawn shop. I needed money and decided to sell my engagement ring from my ex-fiance. While haggling with the pawn shop employee, who was of course trying to give me as little as possible, I started crying and giving a sob story about how sad I was to part with it and so on. My husband's jaw hit the floor and he was quietly fuming. He hated my ex and had thought I did too. He certainly didn't think I cared a spit about this sad little ring. I managed to get a few more dollars from the pawn shop guy and when we walked outside, my husband turned to me, probably ready to break things off and with my cheek still wet with tears, I just started laughing. He stared at me dumbfounded. You're not upset, he asked me. God, no. Why would I be? I just needed as much as I could possibly get, I told him. Have you ever done that to me, he asked. Not yet, I told him, and we both had a good laugh. He still loves to tell that story because he totally fell for it as we stood in the pawn shop. Well, that, that's, that sounds like a scene from a movie. I feel like I would see that on a, on like a, a drama TV show. Yeah, totally. But I, I have more questions. I feel like I want to know, like, did you plan to do this or did it just kind of happen spontaneously? Like, what what's the approach on that? I, uh, I, I think I can honestly say I have never, uh, as an adult at least, uh, used tears in an intentionally persuasive manner. Uh, and I don't know if I would be able to do so if I tried. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we all do things with our delivery and our our body language at times to try and influence these sorts of uh, encounters. I mean, we've all, I mm-hmm. think, read about you know the supposed benefits, and occasionally, I think, I've seen some criticism of this idea too of of taking on the like the humble brontosaurus pose uh, when, uh, say, dealing with. Um, uh, you know, uh, with a, with a person of uh, sort of bureaucratic authority, or even if you've been like you know pulled over, that sort of thing. What, uh, what is the humble brontosaurus pose? It's sort of a uh, I, f- I forget the details of it, but it's like imagine you are a, a sauropod uh, and one that is humble and not threatening. It's sort of like taking on this sort of uh, uh, this this humble body language approach to. Not so much to direct conflict, I think, but sort of these these milder forms of interaction where you could potentially be shut down by somebody and you you maybe want like a little bit more help uh, than than they definitely have to give you. Uh, but like I say, I, if, if memory serves, I think there's been some back and forth on that, and it certainly it certainly is not something that's going to be applicable to to every scenario. Okay, I just looked it up. I think the phrase you've used for this before is the kindly brontosaurus. Oh, uh, okay. Kindly, not for, humble. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe humble, maybe not. But it's sort of uh, sort of the, the head is bent down a little bit, and then the front arms are sort of clasped. Uh, the hands are clasped together in front of you. Uh, it, it, looks very, it looks very humble and supplicant, yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, not so much to really back up the, the pros or cons of that uh, specifically, but just in general, of course, we all do things that are maybe not quite at the level of, of summoning, uh, you know, orchestrated tears of some form or another, but doing things to lean into uh, creating a certain emotional ambiance that we want uh, someone else to pick up on. <laughs> like what happens, Joe, if you have to go into a, uh, a hardware store in a, uh, let's say, a small southern town? Uh, do, do you find things happen to your voice? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, that may indeed be true. I don't know. I, I've never consciously monitored myself for that, but I, I suspect I may shift back into my East Tennessee roots a little bit more, uh, depending on the context. Yeah, I, I think I have at times caught myself becoming like a little folksier mm -hmm. uh, in uh, interactions like that. So, so basically what I'm trying to say is, though, even though, quote unquote, fake tears may seem like an extreme manipulation. I mean, I, uh, to, to some, I don't think it's really that extreme when you take into account all the various other ways that we augment our emotional ambiance for others. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, okay, so if we do this next message from Matthew, I just wanted to preface this by saying this touches on some of the same Dune content mentioned by a previous listener, but kind of expands on the idea. So, Rob, do you want to do this one? Sure. Uh, they write, hey, Robert and Joe, one interesting example of cultural meaning of tears can be found in the Dune series. I guess at some point during his initial stay at the Tabersteach or Seached, I never know how to say this. There's so many words uh, and phrases in Dune that uh, uh, they kind of just ricochet through, uh, uh, through my brain, and I, I'm not necessarily using them in everyday conversation. Anyway, <laughs> Paul weeps for the man whom he has recently killed in a duel. The Fremen are deeply touched by his tears in the harsh desert environment of Arrakis, wasting vital bodily fluid for someone or somebody can be seen as an honest signal of commitment and emotional investment. I was surprised that you hadn't mentioned it, since I know both of you are big fans of Dune. Yeah, so this expands. Uh, another listener wrote in about uh, the scene in Dune where, where Paul cries after he has, has killed one of the Fremen in, in a duel. Um, but yeah, I like the idea that the, the stakes of the, the water content of someone's body being so high in the environment of Dune makes the tear signal especially important. And you could view it as uh, consequently honest, like an honest signal uh, to a much greater extent because water is so precious in this environment. Uh, and, and this does kind of relate to the idea I, I pondered in one of the tier episodes. Uh, again, this is not something that I know of any direct evidence for. It was just something I was kind of wondering out loud about, which was uh, what if adult tears could in part be an adaptation uh, to the complexity of hu the human capacity for deceit? So because humans can lie not only about external matters of fact, but about internal subjective states. So, for example, you can claim to care about someone when, in fact, you don't. Tears being difficult to fake could help serve as an honest signal of in internal emotional states that could help bonding and trust between humans. Uh, and I remember when I was researching tears, one, one way this occurred to me, I think, was I was reading several stories of someone who said they had been planning to break up with a romantic partner and, you know, thinking that that partner didn't really care about them 
until that partner began to cry during the breakup conversation they were having. And then they changed their mind. They changed their mind and decided they wanted to stay with that person. Uh, and, you know, you could all argue that there could be all kinds of reasons for that. But one could be that something about the crying makes it look like their emotional commitment to you is is more real. You can trust it more. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, they continue. Also, one could argue in favor of the view of the function of emotional tears as making us seem more childlike on the basis that we are already a highly neotenic species. Compared to our closest relatives like chimpanzees or even more archaic subspecies of the genus Homo, we retain many juvenile characteristics into adulthood. Shedding emotional tears could be just one more such factor, maybe even making a case for humans being uniquely high on, on neoteny in the entire animal kingdom. And then they uh, close out by saying, also, the expression crocodile tears is also very common in Polish, uh, but I had no idea what it meant until I listened to your episode. Best regards, Matthew. All right. Well, thank you, Matthew. Um, let's see. I'm going to move on to... A message about nail-biting from a listener, another Matthew. This one's named Matt. Uh, and this is funny because this is Matt responding to a third listener, also named <laughs> Matt. Uh, so the, the Matt, we have Matt's aplenty, a cornucopia of Matt's here in the, in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind verse. But Matt says, Robert and Joe, hello, my name is Matt, and I'm writing in response to another person named Matt. He had written to tell you how he randomly quit biting his nails. I also was a nail biter for the first 25 years of my life, uh, but I quit. I can point to naval boot camp as the catalyst of my quitting. In boot camp, the drill instructors are always yelling at people for touching their faces. This makes a lot of sense because of the large numbers of people living in close proximity to one another. They don't want a spreading disease. So anyway, we were issued nail clippers, and I was motivated to use them to keep my nails too short for me to bite them. Love you guys in the show. You've gotten me into watching old horror movies and enjoying them much more than I ever thought I would. Science is awesome, and so are you. Oh, uh, that's very well, kind. Thank you. Very, very sweet, Matt. Thank you. All right, let's jump ahead to some Weird House Cinema feedback here. This one comes to us from Susan. Hey, guys, I just wanted to write in about time after time. I almost didn't listen to this episode because I remember seeing the movie at the cinema with my parents when I was about eight years old. I had nightmares for months. The scene that got me was when Wells goes into an apartment, and it's a complete bloodbath. Now, more than 40 years later, I can picture that severed arm, and it still gives me chills. Of course, after that introduction to horror, I spent the 1980s watching all the now classic slasher films. <laughs> Thanks for a fun travel through time to the early days of scary movies. Funny, I don't remember the love part of that movie, just the blood. <laughs> <laughs> no love, only blood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I, it is kind of a shocking scene when you get that, because uh, there hasn't really been much blood in the film at that point. I mean, a little here and there, but, uh, but then suddenly, yeah, severed arm. Uh, it, it, I could see where that would definitely be a lot if you were eight years old. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we mentioned this in the Time After Time episode, but it's kind of amazing what could get a PG in 1979. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a late 70s PG, so uh, certainly anybody looking to pick that up, th think about it. Uh, but I guess it follows a trend that, you know, has been widely observed for a long time that for some reason— 
the people who issue ratings classifications for movies tend to be far more uh, motivated to kick up ratings in response to, say, uh, harsh language or sexuality than they do in response to violence. So you, yeah. you can get away with a big bloody dismemberment as long as people aren't saying the bad words. Yeah. I'm always I'm always fascinated when people share their stories about what was like the first or one of the first scary movies to really uh, kind of uh, you know get to them uh, when they were kids uh, because for me it was it was almost certainly Toby Hooper's uh, Poltergeist mm-hmm. I remember seeing part of that when I was a kid and uh, yeah the bathroom was, mirror scene ooh, uh, I don't know if it was that scene I don't even know how I was watching it per se. Um, but there was, I don't know, just stuff. Some of it was probably not even like the really grisly stuff, but just like scenes of children being afraid in dark rooms, you know? Mm, like some yeah. of that uh, can really get to you at a, at a young age. I mean, it's, it's surprising how, uh, you know, how scary certain concepts and ideas can be to young children. I was trying to tell my son about the, the duck that said uh, that there are recordings of the duck speaking and, and saying, you bloody fool. And he was like, that's too much. He like, got upset that I was telling him this before bed. And I was like, wow, I didn't think about the, the, the speaking duck saying you bloody fool would be nightmare material. But I don't know, maybe so. I mean, uh, who am I to argue with his reaction here? What about Billy Bass? Uh, he'd probably be amused by Billy Bass. Um, but I have not introduced him to that technology either. Billy Bass will haunt your dreams. It's funny uh, what you're talking about. It makes me remember one movie that I got very freaked out by uh, as a kid. I remember was uh, the movie Cat's Eye, in which mm. there, it's a sort of horror anthology film. Or I don't know if it's all horror. At least one of the segments is horror and features this little weird, creepy gremlin running around in a bedroom that does battle with a cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember that gremlin really creeped me out. Yeah, they had a, it was a great design on that critter. Okay, this next Weird House Cinema response comes from Simon. This is a very long email, so I'm doing some uh, abridgments and editing. Uh, So Simon says, Hey, fellas, welcome from the royal town of Sutton Coalfield, West Midlands, UK. Birthplace of Ken GT40 Miles uh, from, I guess this is somebody from Ford versus Ferrari, which uh, which I haven't seen. Um, But Simon says, it's also mentioned in Shakespeare when Falstaff says, Bardolph, get thee before to Coventry. Fill me a bottle of sack. Our soldiers shall march through. We'll to Sutton Coalfield tonight. And then finally, Simon says, uh, it is the location of a shower of frogs in 1954. I think we'll have to look that one up. Uh, but Simon says, apologies in advance for the long email. I guess an epic podcast deserves epic feedback. Uh, I love stuff to blow your mind and the content that you provide. I store up episodes to play while I undertake my artwork at home. Weird House Cinema is especially my favorite as a long-term cinephile myself. Beloved movies that I have collected include Reefer Madness from 1936, The Outlaw from 1943, the movie for which Howard Hughes designed the cantilever bra, and Carry On Up the Kyber from 68, the 99th greatest British movie of all time, and one of the funniest. Uh, I think actually the only one of those I've seen is Reefer Madness. Same. That's the only one I've seen, yeah. Uh, but Simon says, I'm mainly writing in response to your reference to the TV movie The Day After in your Weird House Cinema episode on Time After Time. Remember, that was the uh, a- another film that was made by Nicholas Meyer, the writer and director of Time After Time, which was a, a, a television film about what would happen in the aftermath of a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. 
Simon goes on, You reference the cultural impact of The Day After, but I guess that you're already aware of the UK film that it is constantly compared to, Threads, from 1984. The UK BBC docudrama about the horrific effects of and after a nuclear war. Scariest movie ever made by a country mile, directed by the man who would later direct The Bodyguard. (laughs) Um, Massively well-researched with input by Carl Sagan. Interesting in its comparison to the U.S. movie The Day After, which, although had a higher budget, has nowhere near the nightmare depicted by Threads. Plus, the latter does tend to eschew drama for information. Not an easy watch, perhaps undermined a little by use of stock footage and televisual feel, but utterly essential viewing. I own both movies, but only Threads keeps me awake at night. Uh, And then uh, Simon includes a quote from the New York Times. The film is not a balanced discussion about the pros and cons of nuclear armaments. It is a candidly biased warning, and it is, as calculated, unsettlingly powerful. I like the New York Times uh, warning you that it uh, that it does not reveal the pros of nuclear war. Yeah, yeah. yeah, The director of this, uh, Mike. uh, I'm sorry, Mick Jackson. Not a guy I'm, I'm that familiar with, but he also directed Volcano in 1997 and no. uh, the uh, Temple Grandin uh, bio uh, that came out in 2010 starring Claire Danes. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, uh, Simon goes on to say, obviously the input of Carl Sagan and the almost documentary feel of the film make this a relevant subject for consideration by you chaps. The science, the Cold War psychology of fear, paranoia, and mutually assured destruction, the final scene of the birth of a child born of rape and fallout is beyond terrifying and is reminiscent of the effects of depleted uranium ordnance on unborn children in recent wars. On a personal note, my grandfather was part of the Allied occupation of Japan in 1945 and experienced firsthand what was left of Hiroshima. It happened to be the 40th anniversary, 1985, that he began to describe it to me, the same year I believe that Threads was shown on TV. It took me from age 14 to 45 to summon the courage to watch it, and that 31 years of preparation was essential, as I was by now a father. Mm, That's heavy stuff. Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, But but from here, the message gets lighter. Simon goes on to list and suggest a bunch of movies uh, that he thinks we would be interested in for Weird House. I'm not going to go through the whole list here, but uh, I'll read one of them that's on the lighter side of the, uh, the, the nuclear cinema uh, catalog. He says, on a connected theme, can I suggest the fantastic Protect and Survive UK information films? They are terrifying and hilarious in their naivety. Don't forget to brush the fallout from your jacket. It's pure <laughs> public service nostalgia for Cold War addicts. And he includes uh, some some links for us to view. I've watched uh, at least one of these clips, and, and the one of the parts that stuck out to me is this very dry British radio voice saying, uh, if someone has died, move their body to another room and cover it in polyurethane. Oh, I, yeah. uh, I, I, I seem to recall that there was a parody of this on the young ones back in the day. Oh yeah. I think in fact, even, um, I think Simon may mention that later in his email. Oh, okay. Sorry, Simon. That's still in your thunder here. But I, I, th- I think that's all we're doing from Simon. Oh, okay. All right. So, uh, well, I'm not stealing your thunder then. <laughs> well, I'm completely stealing it, I guess, because then we're not even reading where you mentioned that. But um, at, You're at telepathically rate, <laughs> robbing him of his thunder. Yeah. At any rate, yes, uh, it is my understanding uh, and, and my faint memory that, that it is lampooned on uh, the young ones. Oh. 
All right. The uh, the Fantasy Bombadil casting continues. We heard from Casey. Casey wrote in and says, Hello, I've been listening to you guys since around the time of the Bicameral Mind episodes and have been a regular listener ever since. I often think about writing in, but usually dissuade myself from it. However, in light of the ongoing Bombadil debate, I decided I had better speak up. In general, I think adaptations are a bad idea. (laughs) The particular impact of a story is often bound up with the specific medium it's told in, and something always gets lost in translation, no matter how well executed. Because Bombadil is one of my favorite parts of the books, I'm glad he hasn't been realized on the screen. All the same, if I had to pick a human Bombadil, one could do worse than the wayfaring stranger himself, Burl Ives. Mm. He's jovial, plump, and sings in a friendly, folksy style. Anyway, thanks for continuing to deliver interesting, engaging, and eclectic content, Casey. Burl Ives. Okay, interesting option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, when he's he's in that uh, uh, the Rudolph um, animated um, show, as I recall, uh, he's the narrator yeah. in that and plays the what the snowman. So he's uh-huh. already we already know that he can play a musical elemental force uh, mm-hmm. that sort of stands outside of a story. So yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I, I would say you want to make sure that he's not in cat on a hot tin roof mode, mm-hmm. because although Bombadil may be a sort of god or elemental, he is no big daddy. <laughs> Well, tell me this, Joe. I know you're a big uh, Jim Steinman fan. If Jim <laughs> Steinman had adapted The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, do you think you could have seen Meatloaf as Bombadil? Ooh. Would that have worked? Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's the sweet spot. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that. Kind of a rocker Bombadil. Hey, doll, Mary doll. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. R.I.P. Jim Steinman. He passed away just earlier this year. Uh, the world is a less melodramatic place without him. <laughs> all right. Uh, how about I read this one from Hannah, also about Bombadil. Subject oh, all right. Line, Keep it coming. Right. Bombadil opinions. This is, I like how this is the new subgenre of listener mail. Hi, Robert and Joe. If I could pluck any actor from any point in their career to play Bombadil, I'd pick Topol, exactly as he was in Fiddler on the Roof, 1971. I've always pictured Tom Bombadil with a similar playfulness and warmth to his character. Uh, That's a great idea, Hannah. Uh, but then she goes on along that train of thought, but considering the annoying limitations of the passage of time or whatever, I went looking for some actors who are still currently working and have Tevia on their resumes and came up with two interesting, but very different possibilities, Alfred Molina and Harvey Firestein thoughts, <laughs> all the best, Hannah. Uh, yeah, both great, both great choices, Gr- yeah. great actors in their own regard. You know, Harvey Firestein. Uh, did a voice of one of the Skeksis on the uh, the the uh, Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, and I loved it. That's right. Yes, he was great in that. Yeah, yeah. I I yeah, I like both of those actors. Uh, so I yeah, I could see them. Now I'm not sure if if Harvey Firestein is maybe getting a bit old. I don't know. He's. I mean, how old were Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen when they made uh, you know the, the Fellowship of the Ring? Uh, so I don't know. He seems fine. Let him do it. We're, not, we're just talking here anyway. Uh, <laughs> Let him do it. <laughs> I'm not going to stand in the way of this fantasy casting. Let them bombadil. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like we're already out of time here. I really don't know where the time went on this episode. I feel like we, we just started it. But uh, here we are. Uh, we'll have to get to the other bits of listener mail next time around. 
In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail, it airs every Monday. we got our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesday, Weird House Cinema on Friday. That's our time to set aside most of the science and deeper concerns and discuss a weird movie. And then over the weekend, we have a Vault episode, which is just a fancy way of saying we do a rerun. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.